Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Austin Smith, who, in addition to being very, very good at snowboarding, is also the co-founder of Season Equipment and the man in charge of overseeing the snowboard side of things at Season, while his co-founder, Eric Pollard, oversees the ski side of Season. And we're doing something a bit different this week on Blister. So today, you're going to get to hear Austin's perspective on season and a whole bunch of other topics. And then this Friday, over on our Gear 30 podcast, you will get to hear a conversation with Eric Pollard that I'll be recording with Eric tomorrow. So be sure you've subscribed not only to the Blister podcast, but also our Gear 30 podcast to catch both of these conversations. Now, before we get started here, I want to remind you that registration for our Blister Summit in February 2022 is now open to Blister members, and lots of people are already signing up. So we're going to include a link in the show notes to this episode for you to check out. And you should check it out because if you are listening to this podcast, then I'm quite sure you will dig the Blister Summit. And one other thing to make sure you're up on, we run a gear giveaway every single week. And this week, we are giving away a pair of ski boots from Full Tilt. So what you're going to want to do is sign up for our newsletter so that you are always up on our latest gear giveaway and don't ever miss them because they're really good. So we're going to include a link to our newsletter sign up in the show notes to this episode. And then I hope you win yourself some ski boots this week. And with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with the Fig Newton loving Austin Smith. Here we go. Well, Austin, how are you today? And where are you today? Um, I'm doing good. I'm here in Bend, Oregon. Um, it's where I've lived for the last 20 years now, which still isn't enough to call myself a local for some people. They're like, unless you're five generations or whatever, like, oh, everyone's moving to Bend right now. And, and so there's a lot of pushback of new people moving here. And for some people, that's still me. I'm like, well, I don't know. I moved here when I was 12. I don't really have a say in it. It's what my parents want to do. Actually, it was very mad at him at the time i think i stopped talking to them for like a week um which was pretty childish but i was not excited about the idea of leaving mount baker to go to mount bachelor and but now i'm still here so it turns out it wasn't such a bad move so thank you parents do we need to dive into this some maybe unresolved childhood things you're working on so from when you were 12 unresolved no we, we we resolved it we got through it and now i'm still here so now i'm thanking them for it I'm a big fan of a short commute to the mountain and uh, at uh, Baker, it was a long commute from Bellingham. So moving here, I was able to like ditch out of school and just go to the mountain in the afternoon. And that was pretty sweet. You know, I think our listeners now have a good handle on is you've lived in some pretty crappy places all of your life, actually. So, I mean, Bellingham and Bend, oof. It's rough. It's tough. It's tough for the kids that like, I don't know. I guess, yeah, both those places are sweet, but you know, all my friends growing up here, you don't realize wherever you live, if it's sweet or not, cause that's all you know. 
And so, you know, growing up in a place like Bend, everyone wants to move away from wherever they grow up. And so that's what all my friends did. And now they're all like, oh, it's actually pretty sweet there. How do we get back there? And yeah, just need a little perspective to realize how how sweet um, it was to grow up here. By the way, I was at Denver International Airport yesterday where when one is walking through a parking lot, one will often see bumper stickers, right, that say native. And given that you brought up the whole local question, my new take on this, it's an obvious idea. So this isn't that novel. It's just true. If you aren't a Native American or Indian, I think everybody should drop the whole local or Native term. You can call yourself a full-time resident or a part-time resident or a visitor, but I think we need to just really, really rethink the whole local or Native conversation. I love that it isn't as much of a conversation in skiing and snowboarding as it is in surfing. Like there isn't that crazy localism vibe at the mountain, which is like such a funny and unnecessary thing. Um, and to just like judge someone based on where they were born. Something like they have no control over It's like, Oh, <clears throat> you're from Colorado. You're from California, whatever. Like to not like someone based on that is such a funny funny thing. All right, then. I'm glad we cleared that up for people. And what I took away is we should probably create more tribalism at the ski areas to try to bring ourselves up to the level of the surf community. Is that yeah. where you want to? Yeah. I'm not a very good listener, Austin. So more that's fights what... in the lift lines. That's what we need. <laughs> that's, what, that's what Austin is endorsing here, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, I'm excited to talk to you today. Well, for all kinds of reasons, actually, but we're doing something kind of fun this week. I I told you this is a little bit like the blister version of Rashomon. First question, have you seen Kurosawa's Rashomon? Negative. No. Okay. Well, maybe you should remedy this this week since you are now in the blister version of... So this is, I think Rashomon came out in... 1951, 52, definitely a film by arguably the greatest director of all time, in my humble opinion, Akira Kurosawa. You should watch Rashomon because this week we are going to be getting your perspective on season. And then in like 48 hours from now, I'm going to be talking to Eric Pollard, someone I think you know, to get his take on season. And now that this has been a thing for a while, so right, this is the blister Rashomon. And unfortunately, I maybe have seen it, but um, I hit my head a lot and I have a terrible, terrible memory. So there is a possibility that it's just, uh, it's gone through. Wow. Austin, that is both very funny, but kind of sad. It is super sad. Yeah. A lot of like all travel places and be like, man, this, this is cool here. Like, and my buddy Curtis was like, we've been here before. Like, what do you mean? Like, like, man, never seen, like, we've been here together like four times. I was like, oh, it's, it's getting bad. Here's hoping that modern science comes up with the new pill to help those of us who have had a number of head hittings in our lives. Yeah, I've been banking on that and banking on some new some new knee technology eventually. So I got a lot, a lot rolling on modern science. On that note, I'm actually going to ask you some questions about your memory because what I was curious about was to see if you could recall... 
some of those very, very first conversations about season. Like, when did this first kind of come up as a potential thing? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think I got brought into the fold probably about two years ago now, a little bit more than two years ago. And yeah, Eric and Bryce, they had kind of been scheming on this for Bryce Phillips of Evo and Eric Pollard of Eric Pollard. Um, they had been scheming on this for certainly a few years prior to to this um, or to having a conversation with myself. But yeah, then I spoke with them maybe about two years ago now, which time flies. Tell me about those first conversations then. It was, hey, here's kind of the concept. We think that there is room in the world for a new kind of company. Is this sort of how it went? Yeah. I mean, the biggest the biggest draw was just that it was creating something with a skier. Um, and just the, like, it's so obvious, but like that had never, that had never been done. No one has ever like started a company together as one, I guess, a skier and a snowboarder. Obviously K2 and ride, they make, or not ride, but K2, they make skis and snowboards. Solomon, they make skis and snowboards, but they're always very divided. They're always kept at, at arm's length from each other. Um, what is seemingly intentional and and there is like so much similarities between the two and so much learning that can happen between the two and i was just excited to like come out the gate um starting a new brand with a skier and because there's a lot of things that like we weren't going to be able to do some of the things that we wanted to do with our perspective brands him at line and me at nitro uh like if nitro started making skis it's uh, a weird move, either eh? snowboard company, but it's just a different, different take on it. And so just the, uh, the simple fact of a skier and a snowboarder coming together and starting something together seemed fun. When's the first time you ever met Eric? See, I'm, you, you set me up already talking about the shaky memories. So now I'm, I'm just going right for the jugular. The first time I ever met Eric, I think it was probably on a, uh, on a Dekine trip to Argentina when I was probably like 17 or something. So that's 15, Eric was 16. like 40. You were like Eric 17. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so probably 15 years ago or so met him there. And then I don't know. I felt like our, our lives were somewhat, somewhat parallel for a long time there. We're both, both live in Oregon. Um, but just with the films that he was making through Nimbus and the films that we were making through drink water, there was just like some crossover there for just kind of general lighthearted take on things maybe. Um, so we'd find ourselves in the backcountry meeting up with him and Ben Shetler and stuff and our, our, uh, values and just the way we like to have fun in the, in the mountains was seemed to be similar. So. 15 years ago and then been running into each other ever since. I like this description. Did you say a lighthearted approach to the backcountry or a lighthearted approach to riding? Mm, see, I already forgot. <laughs> Memory is just... That was uh, a test. Goes, yeah. That was a test, yeah. Lighthearted approach just to the whole work side of snowboarding, I guess. You know, I saw this saying, it was on a different podcast, but Eddie Wall was talking about his days filming for MacDog. 20 years ago or whatever and just how much work it was and how like challenging it was and it just wasn't this fun glamorous thing it was just like 
get up super early and just kind of beat your body down and build massive cheese wedges all day. And, and, and I, and listening to him, I was just like, man, I do not, I do, that is not familiar to me. Like for me, it just always has been just fun. Um, and our approach to filming just was always have as much fun and capture that. And I don't know, we definitely weren't ever trying to be the hardest working. And I guess that worked out where it just, try to have fun and and, yeah you heard it here first kids austin says never try to be the hardest working probably take you down the wrong path or just take i don't know you know uh trick yourself into working hard but having fun while you're doing it so on the snowboard side of things when you were a kid and kind of coming up in this world what riders were you kind of paying the most attention to if any and sort of saying to yourself i like that style or i like this attitude or approach did you have some of those folks um yeah i guess super early on growing up at mount baker it's a whole different world at mount baker it's just like its own little micro micro world of of I don't know. We just never cared about the big movies and the biggest pros. It was just like the dude in the lift line that had like duct tape boots and he was jumping off the big cliff and whether it was like Tex Davenport or, or just kind of the random local heroes was more who I was looking up to. Um, but then once I moved to Bend and started like, I don't know, getting, getting the magazines and buying movies and stuff like that um, was early days probably chad otterstrom um that was like the first pro model snowboard i ever bought um i was i was down for his revival part and man he's one today that is still maybe he's like the greatest of all time of keep doing it um you know he's like a freaking animal still he's still doing sweet mctwists and he's definitely an inspiration for me for yeah never never quit keep going but yeah, so Chad Otterstrom and UC Oxenen and David Benedict was a big early inspiration. Yeah, some of those dudes. As a kid, aside from snowboarding, what were you up to and into? Um, I was a hockey player. So growing up in Bellingham, played a lot of hockey. And then we'd drive over to Canada every weekend playing hockey with my buddy Lucas Tabari. And then it came to be a fork in the road where my, my parents kind of said you had to pick one or the other keep playing hockey or, or, uh, snowboard. And that's when I picked snowboarding and started getting pretty into that, but hockey, skateboarding. Yeah. Those types of things. All the sports that give you a high probability of really hurting yourself. Basically, that's what you, you were attracted to that. I guess so. I mean, I said, uh, my brother's five years older. And so we were just always trying to do stuff in the backyard and play. If I were your parents, I would have been like, here's the deal. You're not playing hockey anymore because hockey just seems always notorious for like the stupid, ridiculously early practices that parents usually have to drive their kids to. That for me, like if I had kids, this would be like, this is why you're not playing hockey because I'm lazy. Yeah, but driving kids to hockey practice is a lot, a much easier drive than driving to the mountain. But my parents were into skiing, so they're down for it. The, the leave times for hockey practice would typically earlier than the leave times for the mountains, no? Mm, I don't know. It's, it was only okay. like 10 minutes away versus an hour and a half. And 
Depends if there's powder panic going on. You got to leave pretty early then. Also, hockey gear just simply smells worse than snowboard and ski gear. True or false? Um, I can give you a run for some of my snowboard stuff. Smells pretty bad. But yeah, there is just such such a special scent of uh, hockey gym lockers. I still go and like uh, go to the ice rink here every once in a while and walking into that locker room. It's like, oh, there it is. It's very, uh, very unique scent. Well, all the hockey fans out there are surely super upset with me at this point. So I'm going to probably move on. This is a question I really like asking some of the folks we talk to since we talk to a lot of very high level athletes across our different podcasts. And one of the things that I have learned in that process is some professional skiers, Olympic level skiers, great riders, great mountain bikers, great runners really, really, really dork out about gear and others that are no less talented and in some cases more talented just don't sweat the gear side of things that hard. And there's a bit more of like, I'm out here because I love being out and maybe I'm a pretty good rider or skier or whatever. And so I can probably adjust to a given board or pair of skis or something. Where would you put yourself like on that spectrum or continuum of folks? Uh, Maybe like a seven. You're a seven. Oh, I like that. I wasn't even looking for a specific number. So I like not an eight and not a six. So why seven? Um, I think gear, gear for me... It changed a lot once I started to get into, once I started surfing a little bit and seeing like what an impact this one surfboard, it like changed my whole relationship to surfing. And I was like, wow, like how important the tools are. And like you said, like I think a pro snowboarder, a pro surfer, a pro anything, they can make whatever work. You can put a couple two by fours underneath Sean Pettit's feet and he can still do a 720. Um but seeing me as like a novice surfer and getting this one surfboard that like changed my relationship with surfing forever. I was like, Oh wow. Like that's where the gear really matters is for the non-professionals. I think, um, obviously like super, super important to have good gear. So like take your ride into the next level, but I think it can make a bigger, bigger impact to, people that are just getting into it and finding like that right piece of equipment can, yeah, kind of change your whole experience with that sport and, and then change your whole life. Yeah. I actually kind of agree with that. I'd love to hear more about this surfboard. Like what was it about this board that kind of transformed surfing for you? And like, what was it about that board that made things kind of click for you? Well, I don't really know because I don't know anything about surfing. Don't know enough about surfboards, but it's just like, I suck at surfing. I still suck at surfing, but this one surfboard just like made it so I could surf somewhat, made it so I could catch waves, made it so when I stood up, it felt comfortable and right. And just like everything clicked and fit just a little bit better. Um, and that like was a big catalyst. It was like, man, if I could create that with a snowboard, that'd be amazing. And so that's kind of been the goal ever since is just like make, make a snowboard that is, and getting that feedback from people from times is, is like the biggest compliment. Just like, man, this snowboard freaking 
I had the best day ever today um, because of the snowboard. And I never really connected with that until I guess I had that connection with myself with surfing and then a little bit with, with mountain biking too, just with, with how good bikes are getting now. It's just like the mountain bike can make you feel like a more capable biker than really you are. Um, cause they can like hide a lot of your, your flaws and your like failed talents. Um, and so, yeah, it's cool when you can find equipment that makes you feel better than you are. It can also get you in trouble. For sure. Maybe especially mountain bikes. For sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah you take Not it. that I'm speaking from any personal experience, but uh, yeah. Take a brand new downhill mountain bike to Whistler and you think you're the <laughs> king of the world yeah. and then you quickly are humbled. Yeah. Yeah. Or in the hospital. Yeah. Okay. So you said that you like gear that maybe lets you feel like you're actually better at that sport than one might be. I think that's a fair definition. So let me push you a little bit. Like what, what would some of the qualities or characteristics be for a board that you're trying to design that would allow someone to kind of reach that feeling? Like, do you have keywords or key product design elements that you look toward to say that helps me get to this yeah with snowboards i feel like it got started to get to a point where there's just too much going on you know i forget when the the banana craze started like 10 years ago or so and it's just been like people trying so many different things which is good like you need that exploration um to find what really works but every brand is just doing so much exploration. And, and so every brand has these massive lines of 50 boards or 60 boards. Um, and it's easy to make the, I feel like the wrong decision when you're, when you're offered that many choices. And so the big thing was just like, I, I feel like I know what works. And, and, and every, every snowboard company like makes a very capable snowboard, a good snowboard. Um, a lot of them also make a couple wacky ones and, and it's good that those are out there for some wacky people that like some weird things. Um, but I just get bummed when I'm in the lift line and I just see like what I think is the wrong person on the wrong board that doesn't suit their, their riding style. And, and I was like, man, I think you'd be having a better time on a, on a board that was tailored for a little bit better for you. But in terms of key attributes, well, my big thing is width um it's it's funny like in skiing i feel like it's more more focused on where you know like you say the ski length and the width kind of hand in hand or almost you say the width first in skiing is that correct often yeah yeah that can be the driving factor and then in snowboards it's it can be a bit overlooked and uh i think even more important for snowboards because skis your freaking feet are going in line with them or snowboards like if you have a big foot and your foot's hanging over and you're going to toe drag you're having a you're having a terrible day so yeah just having the right snowboard that fits you is i think is often overlooked and there's always been such a stigma of, of wide boards or having too wide of a snowboard and, and because everyone wants to snowboard like jake blavelt or gigi or um hawken and and all those dudes have tiny little feet and so they have like shaped a, a large percentage of snowboards to be these narrower snowboards and someone like myself that has 10 and a half feet they're not like massive feet but 
I've had plenty of troubles finding finding like appropriately wide boards or wide enough boards for me. And we're not just talking about for deep powder days. You're arguing that even for kind of mixed conditions or marginal conditions out on the mountain, sounds like you're saying you think many snowboarders are going too narrow. Not going too narrow, but going too narrow for their foot size. Gotcha. Because if you have a size eight foot, yeah, it's just very different than, than if you have a size 11 foot. And that was one of the tricky things of uh, Nitro when we were doing the quiver line, like making snowboards with Brian, we were kind of doing that together and he has a size eight foot and I'm a size 10 and a half. And so it was just like this constant little tug of war, yin and yang. And so, yeah, it's finding the right size, finding the right snowboard that fits you. Easier said than done. Harder done than said. Harder done than said. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We were actually talking about this. I may be having to make a snowboard video soon. Uh, as someone who's literally never been on a snowboard ever, I also have a, I am a size 10 and a half. And so since you are now officially the closest thing I've ever had to a snowboard coach, what width snowboard do you think I should be looking in the range of? to not be making this fatal mistake that you are telling us about? Oh, um, I think you're looking right at 260 millimeters. 260. Mm-hmm. All right. But then there's, yeah, so many other variables of just like then what's the side cut? Because then if it's a different side cut, it's, it's going to adjust how wide it is where your feet are versus in the center, which is where it's measured. And, but yeah, start at 260. 260. Okay. Given that I just blew up my shoulder, you know, not too long ago. I think when it's time to make this snowboard video, I really am most interested right now in avoiding the like utterly extremely violent front side face plant, you know, where I'm actually less worried now about smashing my nose. Like I'd really like to not like blow my shoulder out again. So, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be soliciting a lot of advice on this front. Face plant when you're getting off the lift or when you're snowboarding? Both. I don't want to do okay. any, in no scenario am I interested in, in doing the like... Mule toe scorpion. Yeah, I don't want to do that. Or I just need to do it without putting an arm out, maybe, which could lead to other issues. I got a lot to learn on this front. It's wild how like awkward snowboarding is. Uh, <clears throat> I've like never, once you do it for so long, you kind of forget how weird it is day one. But it was like teaching some kids how to snowboard last year, two years ago or something. And uh, yeah, just like the the general premise of strapping one foot to this thing and then using your other foot to kind of scoot yourself around and like seeing these kids, it's like, this does not work. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a pretty awkward and unintuitive uh, sport that we do. But once you figure it out, it, it works out. But first three days kind of suck for everyone. Since the video we make probably will only, we'll probably only spend like three to four days out doing it. We'll capture peak scorpion awkwardness injury side of things um and that will be the entire video only the 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 downsides you'll get none of the none of the perks perfect one more gear question for now would you say you're pickier about the board the binding or the boot you get to have one of those three things perfectly dialed to your liking you should rank all three of those actually um i mean i think the boot is probably number one just because if your foot's 
in pain. You're not having any fun. That's kind of why it blows me away how many people ski. Just because you're in the boots are very part. comfortable. No, it sucks. Yeah. Um, just the walking from the the parking lot to the lift is like the worst part of the day. You guys got to figure out those boots. But yeah, I guess boot boot board binding. Boot board binding. Okay. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about though? I thought that was the whole reason to snowboard was all the boots were the most luxuriously comfortable thing ever. Like the snowboarders I know will often say that they wish that they could get a stiffer boot that wasn't a full on like hard boot, but like the comfort part, these should be comfortable. Otherwise just ski. Otherwise just ski. Yeah. But even, I don't know, you can have some uncomfortable slippers. No, you've never found an uncomfortable slipper there. Not really. No, I think it's just, uh, you know, coming from ski boots. That's right. What I, I get to, I take the incredibly uncomfortable ski boots off slide right into those slippers and then I'm in heaven. So no, I've never, I've never had an uncomfortable slipper. Yeah. Maybe it's not fair for me to say that there's some uncomfortable boots in comparison to ski boots, but I don't know. Some snowboard boots make your feet go numb while you're sitting on the chair and that's a bummer. So you actually would say you think that there is for you more of a question or more of an issue with snowboard boots being uncomfortable as opposed to maybe you're not finding the stiffness that you personally want. I just think in terms of having a good, successful, fun day, you're going to need a comfy pair of boots. And that's the, the goal of the end of the day, right? It's just to have some fun. I'm there to win. I'm there to win. You're there to win, exactly. Yeah. But no, I, I don't have a hard time finding... Uh, I just haven't worn some shitty boots. I remember back in the day, I used to... Uh, like, you can get in the bathtub with them to break them in, or we'd like drive them over with the car to try to soften them up a little bit. It was more of a struggle of getting them to not be so stiff. Maybe it's just because I was a little kid too. When we make our snowboard video, I am now a hundred percent because of what you've just said, going to include the montage of me driving over whatever snowboard boot I end up in to break them in. So that's going to, that'll take up like 30 seconds of this video, which will be less footage of me crashing and being in pain. So, okay. You don't do that anymore though. You don't drive over your snowboard boots to break them in. No, I guess boots maybe have just gotten better or uh, I know what I like with my boots, so. All right. I think we're going to transition here because I'd like to ask you about fire truck customization. Of my fire truck or all fire truck customizations, my fire truck. Um, I ended up with acquiring a fire truck, a 1953 GMC fire truck. I had no intentions of 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 buying it i didn't buy it um i had my brother had some money of mine at the time and before he paid me back he said hey i uh i just bought this old fire truck and i'm gonna fix it up and sell it and so he bought this thing on ebay for five thousand bucks and flew out to the midwest and drove it back home to oregon and then it sat there for about five years and then he said i don't think i really want to finish building out this camper thing um and technically you bought it. So I guess it's yours now. And I was like, okay, well, I guess, I guess I'll uh, finish building it out. And plan was to build it out and go camp in the bachelor parking lot with it. Um, and I did that for a year. And then I was like, Ooh, this is actually pretty sweet. It just like reconnected me with hanging out at my local ski resort for so many years. I was just traveling so much kind of constantly on the go. 
looking at weather forecasts and just chasing storms. It, it worked out very well in the sense that the one month that I picked to be at Bachelor, it snowed like every single day. So it was just like an awesome month to be there. But after that, I was just like, oof, I like, I like riding at ski resorts. And kind of, I guess, forgot that a little bit where I was just so focused on filming and, and uh, filming in the backcountry and, and still doing street stuff at that time. I just wasn't spending very much time at ski resorts. And so through the fire truck, it kind of reconnected me to ski resorts. And it's been awesome ever since. I love it. I also love that you were like, wait, do you want me to talk about my fire truck customization or fire truck customization in general? I mean, there's a lot of them out there. I just got another buddy that just bought a real sweet fire truck that he's uh, building out right now. So now I'm in this weird little pod of, yeah, fire truck clubs. I'm sure there's a Facebook group for it. But unfortunately, now she's back in the now she's back in the shop. She just had an engine that blew up again. 15,000 miles on it, so that's kind of a bummer. Wait, you only had 15,000 miles on the engine that blew up? Correct. So yeah, after I spent a month in the bachelor parking lot, I decided to make it a little bit more drivable. <clears throat> and so then I swapped it, made it four-wheel drive, put a diesel 12-valve Cummins in it. But then it lived a pretty hard life. I drove it up to Alaska and, and it was a real heavy camper and, and just kind of beat it up pretty good. And I don't think the rebuilt engine that I got was perfectly rebuilt. And so it just uh, exploded on me about six months ago. But hopefully it'll be back soon and be ready for this winter. Hopefully? Is this a thing one hopes for? It seems like you have a lot of say in whether this gets revived or not. Um, I try not to ask my mechanic buddy too often. I'm just like, hey, how's it going? Hey, is it done yet? Because I know he wants it out of his life um, probably more than more than anyone else. So yeah, I'm just kind of hoping it all works out. I feel like there's a article we could write for the New Yorker called like fire truck customization and hope. And hope. Yeah. I, I built a new camper for it. I guess that was two years ago now. And, and right when I got done with that is when COVID began. So I really haven't been able to use it much in the last two years. So still looking forward to some good stints and some parking lots at a ski resort. Not sure which one, but probably start off a bachelor. Let's circle back to season. So I'm trying to think, was last season a full go production year for season? Or remind me, in terms of both skis and snowboards, when were things really you know, production models going out to paying customers. Yeah. Yeah. Season last year was their first year of selling stuff. You know, we got our, we actually got our first round of all of our samples the day all the ski resorts shut down from COVID, which was great timing. I was like, oh, sweet. Here we go. Let's like go, go put some time on these things. And um, then all the ski resorts shut down, but still worked out. We had a great summer at, at, up at Mount Hood that year. And then, yeah, started selling products this previous fall. And it was a little bit, it was, it was kind of a soft, soft launch, I guess, in the sense that we kind of had limited SKUs and some limited sizing. And so, yeah, this year it's been expanded a little bit. The sizes have been expanded and we've added two new models. What did you learn along the way or what kind of feedback did you get that you thought was kind of notable or 
interesting to you? The notable feedback that we've gotten from the snowboards themselves. I mean, it's just been, it's just been great seeing them out there and just seeing how, how they really do contrast what else is out there in terms of they are pretty simple. They're all black. Um, and when you see them together on their own, they, they don't look like much, but when you see it in a lineup of a ski rack, you're like, holy crap, these things look, these things look crazy. There's not like psycho NASCAR graphics all over them. But then I was kind of sad. Like you, it was hard to, uh, you like weren't allowed to be on the chairlift with anyone last year for like COVID protocols here. Like you only could be in your own, uh, your own groups. And so I'd like see people on season stuff out there. I was like, Oh, sweet. Like I want to go like ride the chairlift up with them and chat with them about it and didn't get many of those opportunities. Um, which I really missed. I missed the random chairlift banter with strangers. I like chairlift banter. Down on psycho NASCAR graphics, but high on stranger chairlift banter. Mm-hmm. More just uh, banter with my girlfriend, but she loves him. So that's all that uh, I got her, her blessing, which is kind of the toughest critic I got around. So she enjoys it. She's a big fan of the Nexus. We should talk a little bit about these different models. Again, especially since I might need to figure out... Which model's going to be for you. If any, I need whatever board exists out in the world that is, however you put it, going to make the first-timer who's got the sick, broken-in snowboard boots, because I drove over them a hundred times is going to make, you know, life as easy as possible. So why don't we actually walk through the kind of lineup and, well, we've got four models we're looking at and I'll let you pick where we start. The Nexus, that is just kind of the, that's my all around daily driver. So that's kind of what I'm riding at Bachelor with every day. I can also take it in the park. It goes backwards. It goes forwards. It's a little bit wider. It's at that 260, 260 uh, mil width um, for those 10 and a half feet that fit just perfect on that 158. But yeah, it's, it's not like a crazy stiff board. It's not a crazy soft board. It's just that middle of the ground can kind of do anything snowboard, a bit of an all-terrain vehicle, if you will. Um, and then from there, we have, we have the Arrow. And that is like a little bit more aggressive snowboard. So that's like the snowboard that I took when I went to Alaska last year. That's the snowboard I was riding in the half pipe a bit in the spring. So kind of when I want to go a little bit faster, jump higher and, and demand a little bit more out of my snowboard, um, I'll, I'll break out the arrow. So your half pipe board is your AK board? Yeah, everyone's always like blown away by that. But I think, yeah. Tell us why we should not be blown away by that. Um, cause I want a stiff snowboard when I'm in the half pipe and when I'm in Alaska and I don't want something with a ton of side cut cause you're not making like quick wiggly turns. You're doing more, uh, in the half pipe, you're going straight across that flat bottom, straight up the, up the wall. And in the, in Alaska, you're not, you know, doing tons of wiggling. I'm doing more wiggling at bachelor, but in Alaska, you're going straight ish and fast ish. I thought it always made sense, but it doesn't make sense to anyone else but myself. Yeah, I mean, like, there are zero skiers (laughs) that are, like, whatever they took into the half pipe, that's their weapon of choice for Alaska. Zero. Yeah, just want something big, fast, and responsive. And so that's the arrow. And then you got the Forma, which is a little swallowtail. And I think I first rode... 
yeah, it's like I went to Japan. I was there like 10 years ago. And that's when kind of all, a lot of the snowboards I was riding were just what we call popsicle sticks, which is a twin, twin shaped snowboard. And being in Japan, standing on the lift line, like looking down, I was just like, man, there are so many cool shapes here and weird, funky looking stuff going on. And so after that, I, I went home and I built a snowboard with my buddy's snowboard press um, to make this little swallowtail. It, it didn't work very well, but it was fun. Um, but ever since then, I've been riding a, a handful of swallowtails. And I think it's just a, it's a good tool to have in your quiver to make it just like changes your mindset. You're just like a little bit have a surfier vibe out there. And uh, it just can make it's great in slush. It's great in powder, but it just can make any day a little bit more fun, a little more lighthearted. And so that's the formal. And then we got the pass, which is a split board. And that is based off of the Nexus, which has been super uh, refreshing for me for the sense that split boards are always feel a little bit funky just because you have different bindings. They split in half. It just doesn't ride exactly like your normal, normal snowboard does. So there's always a little bit of adjustment when you're going from your solid to your split. Um, but making, making the split board based off of the solid that I ride the most made it an easy transition going from the solid to the split. So getting on there felt as familiar as it possibly could, which I was welcomed with open arms. What do you notice most performance wise as the difference between, you know, riding a solid versus riding a split? What is the actual thing you're noticing that is that difference? I mean, one of my uh, differences is just I can never get my freaking bindings in the right place or something. I'm always struggling with those bindings um, and have weird toe drag just because it's not the same bolt pattern. And, and so just like finding, getting the exact same stance I always struggle with. But then it's just having it split in half, you know, it's still, it just flexes torsionally a lot different. And so, yeah, it, it is just a different, a different vehicle, but it sure does go uphill nicely. I said four boards. There's actually a fifth. We should also talk about the kin, right? Correct. And that's going to be your snowboard. That's I think the one that you should give a go as day one, learning the snowboard. Tell me more. Um, the kin, it's just going to be a little bit more forgiving for you. So it's a little bit softer. It is a true twin. So, you know, it's your first time when you're doing your falling leaf and do it master in that toe-ed scorpion, it can go both ways and you're not going to be able to you know, be figuring out if you're regular goofy. Do you even know if you're regular goofy? I tend to be a left foot forward type of person. But yeah, so it'll be regular. Um, but yeah, I think the kin can be the right, the right board for you there. A little bit softer, a little bit more forgiving. And that's the lineup. Yeah, just five boards. Simple, simple offering. There is a maybe slight irony here, thinking again about Eric Pollard. I'm certainly going to ask him this question. You also mentioned, you know, Chris Benchetler uh, came up earlier in this conversation. Two of the folks we maybe most associate in the snow sports world with, you know, art and graphics. And yet we're looking at all black top sheets. I wonder if ever we move away or we see season move away from black. Yeah, it definitely certainly could happen. I think it's just all a pendulum, you know, it's just like it's become wanted to simplify things because things have at one point it was 
you know, Eric's art was this super progressive and kind of, and shaking up the whole ski world with the art that he was putting on his skis. Um, and he continued to do that for 20 years. And now kind of everyone's putting a lot of artwork on their skis. And so this is kind of the counterbalance to that. And rather than a big art piece, it's really just more getting hyper-focused on the small details and just really trying to make products that can, can transition beyond multiple seasons. Um, Because whenever you create a new graphic, you inherently make the other one old. Um, And even though there's nothing wrong with the red coat that you're wearing, now your red coat is old because there's this new green one. And, and Eric and myself had both just been kind of living in that world where we were just constantly selling new products to our friends every single year. It's like, you got to buy this new one. You got to buy the new one. That's old now. Buy the new one. Buy the new one. And it just like started to get a bit taxing. And, and this was a way where we could try to question that a little bit. Um, and by having consistent graphics from one season to the next. Um, you're not then just incentivized to replace your snowboard based on the graphic, keep it until it's uh, totally, totally used up. And it's just like snowboards are so, so durable. They are durable goods. It's, you know, some wood, some plastic, some fiberglass. It's all very, they're, they're durable things. You can ride over rocks with them. And, um, but I feel like just so often people just, buy new skis because it's a new season and you're just like, Oh, you got to get a new set of skis. I only use mine four days, five days, eight days, a hundred days, whatever it is. But there's just this incentive to buy a new one every single year. And so just try to uh, just question that whole consumer culture cycle a little bit with this, uh, with the model that we have going. I'm slightly mad at you. I agree with a lot of what you've said here, but ever since you mentioned psycho NASCAR graphic i can't stop thinking about what that might actually look like and i'm deeply intrigued so i blame you for this because i'd never heard the term psycho nascar graphic before is there a facebook group for that for the psycho nascar group no i'm not familiar with the facebook group but um you know what was the talladega nights when he's got the uh fig newtons on his windshield i do love fig newtons well, now I want a psycho NASCAR graphic and some Fig Newtons. Next question. What's the best question I haven't asked you? The best question you didn't ask me. Um, if season is going to be coming out with a uh, Snuller Blade line, since me and Eric have a uh, mutual bond of uh, ski boards at one point. Well, this is definitely the best question I haven't <laughs> asked you. So you nailed you nailed that so far. And what do you have to tell us? Uh, uh, yeah, no, we're not making those. We're not making ski boards, but it is just a funny, uh, funny ghost in both Eric and mine closet that we both uh, snowboarded at one point. Hewitt went to the X Games, but I, uh, I unfortunately chose to snowboard in the year 1998 and 99, um, which, if you recall, was the, the deepest recorded snowfall history on Earth at Mount Baker. And while snow, while blades are great for doing backflips, they are not great for like three feet of fresh snow every single day. And so, yeah, that, that lasted for one short season. But, but yeah, I've always been down to try whatever. I'm down to try new stuff. Like a telemark scheme. 
we do need to talk about Telly real quick because I actually have to make two videos. We talked a lot about the snowboard video that's upcoming, but I'm already overdue on the Telemark video. And you, you know, with your vast experience of telemarking, I, I should just take a minute and get some some tips from you on this front. How many days have you tele-skied? I've tele-skied one day, closing day of Mount Bachelor last year. Um, everyone says, funny, like, even all, how much, how much skiers hate tele-skiing? You'd think that there'd be like, uh, but every pro skier that I talk to is like, oh, well, you're insane. Like, you're going to go telly and that's a terrible idea. Like, don't you have bad knees? You shouldn't telly. That's going to be terrible for your knees. But I don't know. I just like trying new things. So I wanted to give it a go. What'd you think? Harder than you expected? Easier than you expected? About what you expected? I mean, it was just a lot like, um, it felt like split boarding when you're awkwardly going down the hill on a split board. But harder to make maybe look cool or to look good. I have a newfound respect for the telliers that are looking good out there. But it also, it, it, uh, it solves for the uncomfortable ski boot problem. They got great boots. They might have the best boots of all the snow sports. So that's a major redeeming quality of telling. And I think it was good. I think it was also good on the knees to, to, uh, which people find surprising, but you know, you have to be very slow and controlled movements with the telling. So slow and controlled movements translates to easy on the knees it translates to not like you're not going to fly off some 50 foot cliff and kind of blow up on the tellies. Cause it's, it's kind of like why I like snow skating. Cause it just like makes any little thing more exciting. And so you can have a great time on the bunny hill on tellies. Now one thing, cause I, I did actually watch some video of you tellying. And one thing I noticed, give me, give me the critiques. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm. it's probably since I've never tellied, I should probably offer you some pointers. <laughs> I think you were doing a thing that I am definitely going to do because I think when it comes to telly, my biggest fear is also the face plant. Like, because the skiers, right? It's like get on the front of your boot, like balls of the foot, be forward, forward, forward. But now without the heel lockdown, I'm definitely worried I'm just going to, you know now do the front face plant as opposed to when I'm snowboarding and we'll do the toe plant. So like I was seeing on one of your turns, like you were really washing out those tails and it struck me that like, well, maybe I'm thinking about this all the wrong way actually. Cause I was like, I'm going to be completely on my heels, completely on my heels to try to avoid the like, whoa, whoa, smash the face or break the shoulder again. Yeah, but how are you going to drop a knee if you're on your heel? That's a great question. Uh, I'm probably not. I'm going to be one of those ski area tele skiers that never bends the knee, mm. but has all the sick gear. And the comfortable footwear. And the comfortable footwear. I feel like there isn't much gear associated. It's just like Denim Dan is who's telling. They're not the gear nerds. It's the, the ski-mo are the, the gear nerds. The, the telliers are the Denim Dan's. But that, but that's changing a little bit. We we have our like fancy telly bindings now. Okay, I don't know. Someone gave me some telly bindings from like the freaking. <laughs> it's the, the, the only ones the you've 40s. ever seen, yeah. and is and, and just assumed. 
They're the only ones I've ever seen. So probably it's safe to assume the only ones that actually exist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So how did you find that whole balance thing of being too far forward or too... Did you feel yourself going over the bars? Um, I think I went over the bars a couple of times. I kept getting my skis all all tangled up in, in each other, but you'll figure it out. You'll do great. I'm excited for this video. I'm really not that excited for either the snowboard video or the telly video, but I do think it will probably result in hospital bills for me, but it might bring some level of joy to the world for others. There you go. And so I feel like I'm I'm making a contribution to society in that regard. So, yeah. Hey man, this has been fun. I've learned a lot. Fire truck customization and, and a bit about what you all are up to at season. And I know if I do get on the season board, I'm going to tell them the kin with the 260 millimeter width is probably where I want to start. But Hey man, it's fun to connect and hear about this process. And like I said, it, you know, in less than 48 hours, we're going to get Eric's take on things. We'll see how our little Blister Rashomon event plays out here. I'll go watch that one tonight. Report back. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear uh, what you think of Rashomon. So, hey, appreciate the time, man. Look forward to the next time around. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. And do not forget to become a Blister member if you want to guarantee yourself a spot at our upcoming Blister Summit. Now, I also want to say thanks to Austin for the conversation. And keep in mind, this Friday over on our Gear 30 podcast, we will be airing a conversation with Eric Pollard, Austin's co-founder at Season Equipment. Also, one other thing. Tomorrow on Tuesday, which is something like September 21st, we are going to be airing a conversation with Anton Krupichka, one of the patron saints of the ultra running world. It is a phenomenal conversation, might get a little controversial, and you should definitely check that conversation out, frankly, whether or not you even are a runner. So that is over on our Off the Couch podcast. And you can find that one just like you can find all our other podcasts wherever you download your podcasts or on the Blister website at blisterreview.com. Finally, I want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode and from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again, well, tomorrow, as we said, over on our Off the Couch podcast this Thursday over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, and then Friday, Eric Pollard over on Gear 30. That's what we're doing here. Take care, everybody. Talk to you soon.